Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello and welcome to New Books in Southeast Asian Studies with me, Nick Cheesman, a member of the Institute for Advanced Study at Princeton. Today I'm talking with Sohat Unaudi about working towards the monarchy, the politics of space in downtown Bangkok, published in 2016 by the University of Hawaii Press and based on his doctoral dissertation at Humboldt University in Germany. Thanks for coming on the show, Sohat. Yeah, uh, happy to be here. This is a book about space, politics, and power in one of Southeast Asia's biggest and most complicated cities. It's also a book about the presence of the monarchy in all three of those domains. Yet you write in the book's acknowledgments that when you set out to study the politics of space in the center of the Thai capital, the royal institution was not even at the top of your agenda. But in Bangkok, you say all roads lead to the monarchy. What do you mean by that? And how did those roads lead you into the research that culminated in the book? Mm. Yeah, when I lived in Bangkok, um, I did um, a semester abroad in, in uh, Bangkok at Tamasat University in 2007. And I went back for a couple of research, research stays um, for a couple of months. And whenever I um, hung out with friends, um, uh, I was always spending uh, almost all my time in shopping malls in um, downtown Bangkok, in Siam Paragon, Central World and uh, Siam Discovery. And I was just surprised that um, the life of so many, um, especially middle class Bangkokians, um, but also the street hawkers on the street. So many people are there and um, all revolves around um, those few square meters um, in downtown Bangkok. And I was I got interested um, in the meaning. What does it mean? Why do people um, hang out there? And I thought it must have to do something with status, capitalism and and uh, um, social distinction and sociology. Um, I became interested in that. I mean, I'm an area studies guy, so I can can use the whole variety of disciplines to explain myself or the world to me. So um, uh, I got interested from a sociological point of view and also from a political point of view, as it turned out, because I found out that many of those um, uh, shopping malls are owned by the monarchy. So I, I didn't know that uh, when I set out to um, dig deeper into the meaning of shopping malls in Bangkok. And then I found out it's it's the monarchy again. And I already did my BA thesis on the monarchy. I, um, I uh, compared the um, democratic roles of um, Bumipon um, of Thailand, the deceased king of Thailand, and um, uh, King Juan Carlos of Spain. So back then I um, got interested in the topic of the monarchy. Um, that was um, right after the 2006 coup against Taksin, when uh, the political role the monarchy plays became quite apparent, also with the publication of the book uh, The King Never Smiles by Paul Hendley. So I was already very interested in the topic of the monarchy, but when I set out to um, find a topic for my PhD dissertation, 
Um, I actually I just wanted to explore the deeper meaning, the sociological meaning of downtown Bangkok and its shopping malls. And then again, it was the monarchy uh, popping up and becoming the most dominant theme of uh, uh, my work. And uh, that's what I mean, that in Bangkok, all roads seem to lead to the monarchy because it has its tentacles everywhere. And uh, that's not only true for Bangkok, it's true for the entire country. So um, that's how my research um, uh, uh, ended up to be about the monarchy again. Well, there you were at Tamasat in 2007. Um, a mm -hmm. few years later, of course, in response to the political events of the 2000s, there were the massive um, anti-government redshirt protests in exactly that same area that you'd been in with your friends and, and colleagues. And the prologue of the book, talks us through the site and circumstances of those events and you return to them at various points in the book. For listeners who didn't follow those events closely, could you sketch out a little more about where they occurred and why, building on what you've just said, why that particular location and the manner in which the protests were conducted matter so much for an understanding of the politics of space in mm -hmm. Bangkok with which your book is concerned? Yeah. Actually, even though the events were very sad um, that um, I'm describing in the prologue, um, uh, I was quite lucky that those events happened from a researcher's point of view, because it was in late 2009, early 2010, when I decided to um, go and uh, do some field research um, in downtown Bangkok. And that was a few months before um, the Red Shirts decided to actually occupy um uh, downtown Bangkok and the shopping malls, the spaces around the shopping malls um, for um, their political demonstrations. So um, even before they occupied the space, um, I decided to study it from a sociological and uh, um, political uh, point of view. So um, you can imagine that when I heard that they relocated the protest site from Rajdamnon Avenue to Rajprasong intersection, I mean the intersection in front of those shopping malls, I was quite quite excited, um, actually. And um, I arrived in, in Bangkok in April. That was about a month before um, the crackdown on the Red Shirts occurred um, on the 19th and 20th of May. Um, so um, I spent um, a, a few days and weeks um, at the protest site in, um, at Rajprasong intersection. And I was amazed by um, how um, how uh, the Red Shirts turned that space into their space, which used used to be a middle-class space, a, a, a high-so place, um, as they call it. Um, I mean, high-so is the, is the abbreviation in Thai for high society people, even though there is also a slum community and has always been a slum community behind the shopping malls that has been um, excluded from research on uh, uh, that particular area um, uh, before. So I also wanted to, um, to focus on the non-middle-class and non-high-so aspects of that space. But then the red shirts came and turned this, um, this uh, seeming, seemingly high-so uh, middle-class space into their space. And that was exciting in itself. But then... Um, uh, in mid-May, this crackdown on the red shirts, um, red shirt protests um, happened in um, in downtown Bangkok, and uh, I was there. And I woke up um, the morning after the crackdown. I saw the smoke um, in the sky from the shopping malls um, because the um, red shirts had uh, set shopping malls ablaze uh, while they were retreating from the soldiers. And I was just thinking, yeah, something um, really important happened here, and. Um, 
uh, I hadn't wished for that to happen because it was quite quite um, sad. Uh, actually, the loss of life around 100 people died or 90 people. There's still not an official number. I think how many people died during the weeks of the protests, but a um, couple of people died, and that was sad in itself. But from a researcher's point of view, it was exciting to to um, dig into um, uh, 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 into um, the facts behind um, the reason for the red shirts to move their protest site there. What? Why did they do it? Uh, what was the importance of that site um, uh, from a political and sociological uh, point of view? And then that morning um, after the crackdown, I. Um, uh, took a friend with me who is from southern Thailand, so he knows uh, dangerous situations um, because um, probably most of um, the um, the audience uh, of this this podcast know that in southern Thailand uh, there is this Muslim insurgency going on since uh, 2004, and um, many thousands of people have died there. So he knows dangerous situations, and I took him with me, a Thai friend, and we set out to. Um, to uh, make our way to Central World Shopping Mall, which um, which was had been burned down partly, so um, we went through the city, through the um, area of the crackdown the previous day, and it was quite um, quite uh, challenging actually uh, uh, emotionally because if you know Bangkok and you know how um, if you if you know the traffic jams and how crowded it is always um, it always is and then suddenly you find yourself alone with your friend on an, in a completely empty street it's like a last man on earth scenario um, where you are the only ones in the city that that's usually very crowded so it was very um, very dramatic actually that morning um, and then we passed one military barricade after the other we had to convince the soldiers to let us through. Um, and then actually we managed to get to Central World and on our way we saw a lot of um, burning buildings and uh, bullets in the walls and um, I mean l a lot of devastation and uh, that was just when I was standing in front of the um, gaping hole that the, um, that the um, fire um, from the previous day left at Central World um, shopping mall I was just thinking yeah something um, very imminent and very important uh, had just happened here and um, yeah, that was actually um, the um, experience that uh, got me even more interested in the topic that I had chosen, um, just because um, I felt it was important. But that that uh, morning, I just realized this is really an important topic, and um, yeah, I was excited to um, to learn more about the background of what had happened there. I think maybe we, what we can do at this point is move out from the details a little bit. And thank you very much for the evocative account of 2010, which is very powerfully delivered in the prologue of the book as well. I'd like to grapple with the two parts of the title of the book, starting with the, the subtitle. Um, perhaps uh, listeners will get an intuitive sense of what you mean by the politics of space, but could you be more specific about what it means for you to do a sociological study of space in the city centre and why bother with it anyway um, beyond uh, what you've already alluded to in your previous remarks? Um, yeah, I mean... Um I mean, what I said in my previous remarks is actually uh, uh, why I thought it's important to to do this uh, this kind of study. It's just that I felt uh, previous um, uh, um, explanations of why those shopping malls are so important for the daily lives of Bangkokians were lacking 
um, a broader perspective on what um, it what it is that makes those shopping malls so central to to um, to Bangkok. It was not just, I, from my opinion uh, or point of view, it wasn't just um, that uh, the middle class um, wants to surround themselves with expensive stuff and that's why they go there. I mean, you have um, a lot of uh, community shopping malls um, uh, also outside of Bangkok that are um, uh, uh, becoming uh, uh, more plentiful in recent years and, and already had become very... Um, plenty for uh, while I was starting my research, but people even from the outskirts where you have quite uh, uh, new shopping malls are making all the way um, to the city center because somehow they thought that uh, Siam Paragon and Central World and uh, um, Siam Square and all these areas are um, somehow more relevant and um, uh, uh, more prestigious than the shopping malls in their neighborhoods, which were offering the same kinds of goods, um, the same kinds of, of uh, um, movies in the in the um, in the movie theaters and and the same kind of food chains and stuff. So why did they come to the city center? I actually did some research. I um, uh, distributed some questionnaires in um, in uh, community shopping malls outside of Bangkok, and people told me that they were making their way um, into um, the center of Bangkok um, uh, up to eight to ten times a month, which is uh, which you, they wouldn't have needed to do. So um, there was something uh, uh, that was um, distinguishing those shopping malls from the rest of the of the malls in, in uh, Bangkok. And um, that's why I became interested to look at it from a sociological and political point of view, because um, there must have been something behind it that is not just related to social distinction through um, certain kinds of goods that were available to people all through Bangkok, not just in the, in the city center. And what was that something behind it? That was the, um, the monarchy. I mean, um, the entire um, history of um, uh, that area is related to the monarchy. The monarchy, in tandem with the military in the 1950s, um, uh, decided to um, develop that piece of land into um, the showcase of modernity in, in Thailand to draw tourists, to um, uh, also uh, portray to um, the domestic audience that Thailand is becoming a modern country, a modern nation. And uh, um, and both the military and um, the monarchy made a good business out of that because um, I mean, for example, um, Siam Paragon, the shopping mall that most people who have been to Thailand know, um, uh, only opened its doors I think in 2000. When was it? 2005 or six or something. And before that, there was a very famous hotel at that location, the Siam Intercontinental Hotel, and that was built. In, 19, in the 1960s, opened, I think, in 1968 or something. And uh, that uh, hotel was built on a piece of land that belonged to the neighboring um, uh, uh, palace, uh, Wangsa Patum. And um, the uh, monarchy actually um, itself decided to rent out part of the palace um, uh, property to build that hotel, so they made money um, out of that, out of renting out uh, uh, the piece, that piece of land, and they made money um, by uh, being a shareholder in the company that was running that hotel. So the monarchy, from the very beginning, um, had um, had a, a stake in the operations of the businesses there. So 
and and uh, uh, most of those businesses were run by um, the military or people close to the military. So a lot of the executives in the companies that were running those businesses, like the Siam Intercontinental Hotel, were um, uh, military, um, uh, um, were from the military, or they were related to uh, military strongmen. At that time, um, uh, um, most people um, belonged to uh, uh, Sari Tanarat clan or Tanong, um, uh, who was... Um, who was uh, uh, leading the government at that time and um, all those uh, uh, famous military people. And they were all running um, the businesses and the monarchy was a stakeholder in those businesses. So, um, uh, but uh, the, they, the executives, they made uh, sure that um, those uh, uh, projects that were built on royal land or on land not directly owned by the royal family, but by the Crown Property Bureau, which is managing the properties for the monarchy as an institution, as opposed to the monarchy as a family or as individual family members. Um, those businesses that were built on crown property um, land or on land belonging to the to the royal family, um, they made sure that those were the state of the art businesses. They were always the most prestigious, the most um, elaborate and expensive um, uh, uh, showcases of of time modernity. So um, there's a long history of that particular um, area in Bangkok being. Um, more prestigious and more um, relevant than the rest because it was constructed um, in a literal sense as um, as the um, window to um, to progress and gan uh, patana as you as you call it in in Thai. So um, uh, yeah, and and the involvement of the monarchy, of course, considering the um, particular role that the monarchy plays in Thailand and the the um, almost godlike appeal of the king um, of course lends more legitimacy to um, to capitalism uh, than uh, uh, if the monarchy hadn't been involved so the entire project was also to um, to latch on or to use the royal charisma so to speak in order to um, on the one hand um, uh, uh, introduce capitalism uh, as a, a counter um, ideology to rising communism in the region and to make it at the same time uh, um, appear um, more legitimate. I mean, consumption in a Buddhist sense um, is not really um, related to that idea of non-attachment and stuff. So you needed uh, an ideological tool to make it acceptable to have those shopping malls, hotels, and and entertainment venues um, in the center of Bangkok um, um, according to modern capitalist, capitalist standards. So you, they, they uh, needed the monarchy as um, a source of legitimacy for those for those kinds of activities and um that's the role the monarchy played, and uh, which it is still playing today. And um, that is what makes this particular piece of land uh, so important um, as compared to um, a shopping mall in the middle of nowhere um, in uh, uh, the outskirts of Bangkok, where the monarchy doesn't have a role to play. And where the historical depth of the land um, and the political relevance of the land isn't as um, tangible as it is there in the city center. You, you concentrate on royal charisma, and in this we hear uh, what more than just echoes of Weber. You're, you're quite deliberate in your use of him, and you insist on the applicability of his approach to 
charismatic leadership in the case of Thailand. What's the advantage of adopting a Weberian approach to the study of authority in that country? Mm. Yeah, in the answer to that question, I already come to um, explaining the subtitle of my book, Working Towards the Monarchy, um, which is um, um, a phrase that I actually adopted from Ian Kershaw, who is a very um, famous scholar of Nazi Germany. And he was um, actually, he was caught up in um, a very big debate in the 1970s um, and 80s about um, uh, the role of Hitler in Nazi Germany, because he was more or less um, someone who um, followed a structuralist approach, who said that it wasn't Hitler as a person who was relevant um, for what happened in Germany back then, but that it was more like a social approach. uh, reason behind all that. So it was um, uh, society at large that um, was more important to um, the developments than the person of Hitler. But then there were people who were arguing that without Hitler, this um, couldn't have happened. And then um, Kershaw started out to write a biography about Hitler, which is weird for someone who says that Hitler isn't that important. And then he came to the point where he had to reconcile his structuralist approach with um, this idea of uh, there being a leader who is um, somehow playing a role um, uh, for the developments that that um, occurred. And then he uh, um, started to actually um, uh, use Weber because for him, um, this concept of charisma that Weber um, uh, uh, developed or yeah, that he used um, was very, very um, useful because um, Weber says that charisma um, is not just a thing that is there and um, is only owned by um, a person and then people accept that that person is charismatic, but that it's um, a symbiotic relationship, that um, that charisma is also useful for society at large and that uh, through that a feedback mechanism uh, uh, um, is set in place where people depend on the legitimacy that they get for their actions from the leader and through confirming that charisma by always latching on and using that charisma to legitimize their own actions, the leader becomes again more charismatic. So that's there's this feedback loop. And um, that's how uh, Kershaw started out to explain Hitler Germany, Nazi Germany, that um, there was uh, this leadership figure, Hitler, and he um, gave out a few general directives and then people started out to use Hitler as a source of legitimacy for their own actions. So, for example, if um, if uh, a butcher had um, a competing shop next to him, he would accuse uh, his competitor um, of being um, an enemy of the state or something, maybe because he found out that that person had Jewish um, ancestors or something, and then he would have um, got rid of um, of his competitor um, by using um, using Hitler. So in that sense, um, uh, or, or using the ideology that Hitler um, Hitler uh, uh, um, yeah formulated. So in that way, um, a leadership figure um, uh, becomes only the source for a society that starts to run on autopilot, where where a lot of people are legitimizing their daily actions or also decisions they make um, by um, uh, uh, harking back to um, the important role that 
the charismatic leader is playing. And that is something that I found very relevant um, for the case of Thailand. Actually, that was something that I, that I, um, an idea I developed before reading Kershaw, and then I read Kershaw, and I thought, yeah, that was exactly the way, um, or is exactly the way um, that works in Thailand. You have this um, leadership figure of Bumipon, who's um, charismatic or considered to be charismatic, where a lot of charisma has also been constructed around him um, uh, after he uh, uh, he um, acceded to the throne in um, 1946, um, started those country tours, they reinvented traditions and made him at a certain point appear like a demigod and people could use the legitimacy that... Um, yeah, they gained or that was um, somehow, yeah, inherent in the charisma of the king, in order to advance their own their own aims, um, and uh, that's exactly um, how I think uh, Thailand is working or has been working until the death of uh, King Bumipon uh, last year. I think a lot of things um, are going to change, but I think we will get to that later. Sure. We might save that for the end of the discussion. What I'd be interested yeah. to know, though, is what really is the, conceptually how you're distinguishing uh, working towards the monarchy from, say, uh, Duncan McCargo's influential notion of network monarchy that's been in mm -hmm. play among scholars of Thailand in, in recent years. Are they, are they sort of complementary uh, notions or are they... Um, in some way uh, distinguished by a, a, an oppositional relationship uh, or, or is it offering you a, a new approach to analysis of the situation in Thailand that network monarchy or analogous uh, concepts might not? I mean, Duncan was actually my, my teacher at the University of Leeds. So um, I am his student. And of course, um, my my concept is um, uh, related to the network monarchy. My um, issue with the network monarchy is that it um, puts too much emphasis on um, elite networks, on elite actors, um, and it's not um, structuralist enough. I mean, um, it's particularly obvious if you go um, to the slum community behind um, Sayam Paragon and you talk to the people there and those people who are very poor, who struggle um, to make ends meet, are using the monarchy in order in in their own way um i mean they are um, illegally occupying that piece of land and they are um, time and again um uh, uh, they have to counter attempts by the crown property bureau to move them out uh, in order to build a royal park instead of that slum and they are always using the monarchy as um an argument um against the crown property bureau which is er ironic in itself because they say um, the king allows us to live here. We are right next to his palace. Our ancestor used to work in the palace. So we have a historical bond with the monarchy and with this particular King Bumipon. So that's why we, we are allowed to stay here. So they are using the monarchy in their own way to legitimize um, um, their, th them staying there at this um, particular piece of land. So, um, and there are so many incidents that are not just related to elite networks around, around the monarchy who use it to legitimize their actions and to um, prop up the monarchy. It goes down to slum communities and um, all the social classes and spheres in between. So, um, 
that's why I think that working towards the monarchy um, in certain respects and circumstances is a bit more helpful to explain certain things um, relating to the monarchy um, where, where it's not just about elite actions um, uh, around the monarchy uh, that make the monarchy a politically relevant actor and a socially relevant actor. So why did uh, Thaksin Shinawat pose or why was he at least perceived to pose such an unusual threat to this authority, perhaps charismatic authority of the royal institution? Yeah, because he became a charismatic leader um, in his own right and he was... Um, he was uh, in that way opposing the monarchy as the sole sort, so, source of charismatic le legitimacy in, in Thailand. I mean, he, um, he diverted people's loyalty and attention away from the monarchy as the pinnacle of charismatic uh, legitimacy in Thailand uh, in um, actually um, meeting the needs and the demands of people in the countryside Previously, it was mostly royal projects, individual projects, a lot of them, but there were individual projects that were somehow helping the poor to get by. But with Taksin, a structural change occurred where um, money was poured into the countryside. People suddenly could afford, because there were easy credits, could afford two cows instead of one cow. They could... Um, they could use credits to um, improve their lives and these kinds of things. And they just realized that if they um, use the ballot um, wisely, they can make actually a change in their lives by, um, by electing a leader who um, is more um, responsive to their daily needs. And, um, uh, and, and, and Taksin used a lot of uh, the tools that had been previous, uh, previously used by the monarchy in order to um, to show up his image by um, touring the countryside as the king had previously done and then um, getting close to the people in touch with them, uh, even more close than the king had ever been because he couldn't actually be, uh, get too close to the people because he was still a demigod. You can't be too um, too upfront and too, too close to the people in, in order not to lose the, the sacred aura around you. But Taksin could do that, so... Um, People were just realizing that um, there is a, a, a new leader in town, a new charismatic leader in town. And um, there were a lot of stories that were spun around uh, uh, Taksin that had to do with almost uh, uh, divine uh, powers that people or some people started um, to believe that he possessed, like he was riding on a, an elephant's neck without... Um, Without any kind of protection, he was sitting on on the elephant's head, which is very dangerous because if you ride on on the head of an elephant, he could smell you and then throw you, uh, uh, throw you from his neck, and then you would be dead or something. And he could just sit like that uh, on the elephant's neck, like uh, like um, old um, Thai kings, and suddenly Taksin could do that. And there were some. Um, stories that were spun around Taksin that made him also um, appear like um, uh, he had some kind of proximity to some sacred source of, of power. And that it was this mixture of, of being a wise politician, um, uh, diverting people's loyalty away from established networks of power uh, towards himself, and then also this idea um, that is um, often not very far in Thailand of um, a powerful and successful person having some kind of connection to sacred sources of power and 
And that's why the um, royalists in Thailand weren't really happy about what happened because they saw the popularity of Thaksin rising at the expense of, of the monarchy and they wanted to prevent that and that's why the 2006 coup happened. Did his business interests and networks also pose a threat? Mm, of course. I mean, uh, business and, and money is always um, a case in point. But uh, on the other hand, Thai business people have been quite quite um, uh, uh, able to um, latch on to new sources of power um, if the... Um, if if the time demanded to be more flexible. And that's actually also something that I'm talking about in the book, that um, uh, business people in Thailand have um, uh, in general become, uh, uh, I mean, powerful in their own right and sacred in their own right. Because, I mean, there was this constant, over decades, this constant transfer of um, uh, legitimacy to capitalists started by the monarchy in tandem with the military, what I talked about earlier, this legitimacy that was given to capitalism and consumption by the monarchy, by building shopping malls and these kinds of entertainment venues. And uh, so so capitalism and success in, um, in the capitalist sphere wasn't seen as amoral, um, as it should have been probably in Buddhist terms, but um, it was a moral thing. And uh, if you look around at uh, Rajprasong intersection, for example, there are a lot of um, very popular um, shrines and spiritual places that had been built by business families in Thailand. And uh, they became somehow promoters of religion and of, um, of uh, spirituality in their own right. And Thaksin was such a person on a large scale, but you have a lot of business families in, in uh, uh, Bangkok and, and Thailand um, who um, have developed um, their own ways of managing um, this, uh, um, this tension between uh, uh, religion and capitalism. And um, I mean, they could have, I could have imagined um, a future um, with capitalists um, uh, becoming independent from the monarchy, but that wasn't supposed to happen because there were a lot of other, um, uh, um, a lot of other um, uh, stakes at play which uh, prevented um, an, an organic transition or development towards such a scenario because it was also a power game between the military, the monarchy, and, and Thaksin. So. Could you briefly say a bit more about those shrines? Because I think that's one of the really uh, attractive and fascinating parts of the book is this um, not only mundane but supramundane battle of sorts between competing forces in the Rat Prasong area. It really captures uh, very nicely uh, the, the, many of the phenomena that you're discussing across the book. Mm -hmm. So if I talk uh, specifically about those shrines, I mean the... Um, the uh, starting point of those shrines was the um, the Erawan shrine, a shrine um, with a four-faced Brahma statue at its center, which was built in the mid-1950s when the Erawan Hotel was um, built um, at the southeastern corner of Rajprasong intersection. And there were a lot of um, accidents happening during those constructions. And um, then... Uh, um, a soothsayer came and he said, yeah, we, um, you should build um, a shrine at that intersection in front of the Irawan Hotel in order to, um, to calm the spirits and uh, 
to to worship Brahma, and then it, you will be more lucky with this kind of with, with this specific business. So this Brahma shrine was built, and uh, um, in the uh, following decades, um, the business people around um, the area built their own shrines. I mean, um, uh, because they saw that um, they saw how popular the the shrine for Brahma became. Um, People, especially business people um, and people who wanted success in, in uh, their businesses, came there and uh, made offerings and stuff. So um, that was actually, um, um, I think, the realization among the business people in that area that it doesn't have to be the monarchy that um, is actually building those things and that um, that is uh, building the most uh, sacred uh, spaces in Bangkok. There can be very sacred centers that um, are being built um, uh, uh, that are related to businesses and business people. I mean, there used to be it used to be the city pillar shrine in um, the old part of Bangkok that used to be the spiritual uh, center of Bangkok, but suddenly the Brahma shrine in uh, at Rajprasong intersection uh, became a competing um, center, spiritual center in in Bangkok, and this realization that um, uh, spirituality or, or sacredness doesn't necessarily have to be related to the historical depth of the monarchy but that a shrine in front of a very modern uh, modern hotel in that sense in that case uh, the Erwan hotel was the first uh, really modern hotel that was being built in in, in Bangkok that su such a shrine could become a center um, uh, was somehow the starting point for um, probably not um, uh, uh, um, a realization in the sense that ah this has become a, a center so let's all build um, our own shrines and, and become independent from the monarchy but it, it was the starting point for a kind of development that was probably maybe subconscious but that um, just uh, uh, proved to show that um, business people can can be um, the protectors um, or saviors or safeguards of, of um, sacredness and spirituality in their own right. So um, then in the following years, um, other um, um, other uh, shrines were built in the city center, like um, in, in front of neighboring buildings, a shrine to various, uh, various Hindu gods. And uh, there is this uh, very interesting, um, uh, um, this very interesting, um, uh, uh, statue um, on the, I think it's the fourth floor of the Gason uh, um, shopping mall, where you have a statue of Lakshmi um, uh, being um, confronted by the royal Garuda on the other side of the um, of Rajprasong intersection on the facade of a building directly opposite uh, of that Lakshmi statue. And you can actually see the, the, um, the serious looking Garuda opposing in a way the Lakshmi statue. The Lakshmi statue was um, was um, donated or installed at that place by the Sirikon uh, uh, family that owns Gason uh, Shopping Mall, and then they are both confronting each other. And that was a picture that I included in the book, where actually um, a spiritual shrine and center built by a business family is somehow opposing the um, traditional. Um, uh, the traditional spiritual sign, uh, the spiritual seal of the royal family. And this is something that um, I think isn't very um, 
I mean, it, it's not happened yet that you have this um, independence of spirituality by um, by independent business families and capitalists in Thailand, as opposed to the monarchy. There's still the strong link, but that is something that I could um, uh, uh, foresee to happen in the future with the current king, um, who is acting uh, quite differently from um, from his father. So, um, yeah, that's that's actually um, the role of those shrines that I find um, very um, interesting as well. That's why I studied them. Well, another very interesting part of, of the book towards the end is the tale of two palaces, as it were, uh, one that survives to this day amid all of the high-rises and shopping centers and the other mm -hmm. that ceased to exist not only physically but probably also in the consciousness of uh, Bangkok residents. Could you talk us through those two palaces and why is it that a comparison of the fate of the two is instructive? Yeah, I mean, it's a very complex story and uh, the chapter is quite a long chapter. But to make it short, there used to be a palace um, where um, today um, a central world shopping mall is, is um, has been, been built and um, where the slum community um, still is um, that was uh, that belonged to a prince who could have been king um, uh, uh, in 1935 when uh, King Ananda, the brother of King Bumipon, was crowned king. There was this uh, discussion whether he's eligible, this competing prince is eligible to become king or not, and there could have been arguments um, uh, to, to be made uh, why the other prince uh, should have become um, become a king instead of uh, ananda because he was from a from a dominant um, family line uh, his um, his mother or yeah his mother was was more important in the ranking of the queens than uh, than the mother of um, of uh, king ananda's father so um, but but that prince uh, uh, wasn't elected or, or chosen to be king by the coup makers and uh, so it was Bumipon's line or, or um, Prince Ananda's line that uh, that came to the throne. And then with that uh, decision, um, it, it became Bumipon in 1946 to become king. Um, and that um, palace uh, belonging to that competing prince has uh, disappeared. It was uh, deconstructed in, 19, um, in the 1980s and uh, nothing alludes to its former presence. I mean, it's vanished from the place, um, which is... Uh, Sad for many people who knew it, the palace, because it was a beautiful palace with a huge garden, two lakes, and um, uh, a lot of social events happened there, and um, and uh, must have been a nice place. I only saw a few pictures that I managed to get from people who uh, used to um, live around the area, but um, you don't see any um, allusion to um, uh, to the. Um, presence, former presence of that palace anymore. And then you have the um, Wang Sapatum, which belongs to the Mahidon family, to the family of King Bumipon and, and, and King Batira Longhorn, which is still there, thriving next to the shopping malls, making a lot of money. Um, I mean, uh, Princess Sirinton, uh, 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 King Bumipon's uh, sister, is still um, residing in that palace, and she makes a lot of money from renting out land belonging to Wang Sapatum um, and... Um, I mean, uh, with the um, vanishing of importance of the family of that competing prince, his palace vanished, and with the rising fortunes of the Mahidon family, uh, the um, the neighboring Wang Sapatum was thriving. So you can see, if you study space, 
and why some spaces exist or are being built and other uh, other places are destroyed or not being built. You can see how studying space and architecture leads you to um, certain conclusions about the social and political spheres as well. So that's, um, that's a, quite an important case study in my book to make um, clear why um, studying space is, is uh, it's making things a bit more obvious than they would be if you would just be talking about them without, uh, without having this concrete um, physical structure to talk about. And the continued existence of that one palace, uh, you point out, also significantly determines the architecture in the area around it, although with exactly. compromises. Yeah, I talked to the architects, um, particularly of uh, of Siam Paragon, and um, because it's it's quite obvious if you if you look at um, Siam Paragon with open eyes um, and interest in architecture, you see that all the walls towards um, Sapatum Palace, which is right next door, are closed. There is no window towards the palace except for a few places, and then you look at those places where you have windows, and you find out that those are uh, places that are exclusively accessed by rich people, like um, a, a lounge for the holders of a prestigious credit card, or um, in the neighboring Sayam Tower, you have um, the, uh, the, the offices of leading um, Thai companies um, that um, are allowed to have views and windows towards the palace. And then you find out that visual access to the palace is actually a privilege of um, of the rich and famous and um, the rest of the ordinary citizens and tourists and visitors to uh, Sayam Paragon and Sayam Tower are not able to see the palace. So um, you can see in built form that, um, that uh, uh, yeah, it's, it's a privilege to be close um, to the monarchy and to have a visual access to them. And you can see that actually in the entire um, in, in the entire area, there's been a new hotel built on the other side of a canal that is uh, flowing right in front of Siam, uh, uh, of um, Sapatum Palace, where the entire facade towards the palace had to be uh, closed by window blinds in order to by, by concrete uh, window blinds in order to prevent people on that side of the hotel to have a view of the palace. So it's really um, a privilege to have visual access to the palace. It's quite difficult, actually, to to take photos of the palace um, because uh, usually you are not allowed to do that from the places that have windows. I talked to the architects of Siam Paragon, and they said that um, the princess herself, Princess Sirinton, was complaining about the closed wall. She said that, um, I mean, the architect uh, told me that uh, the princess told her that um, it feels like she is living behind the um, Great Wall of China, and uh, she liked the um, the first plans for the shopping mall uh, much much better. And those uh, those plans, um, the shopping mall as a glass cube. I mean, it would have been completely made of glass. But the security team and the security people around the princess told the architects that's not possible. You cannot have glass towards the side of the palace, and without um, seemingly without the um, the knowledge of, of uh, Princess Sirinton that, that the plans were changed. So you can see that um, it's not necessarily the monarchy and its individual members that are making decisions. It's uh, the people around them who try to somehow um, protect the charisma of the monarchy. Because, of course, if any, anybody could have a look at the, at the palace and sometimes the 
the princess uh, jogs through the park around her palace, you could see her, it would make her less seem less sacred and the charisma um, of the monarchy would be at stake. So that's why it needs to be protected and can only be um, accessed visually by people who are deemed worthy of having a visual access to the palace. Chulalongkorn University also occupies a large area of land in this locality and there's probably many listeners to the podcast will have visited the campus at some time or another. Uh, briefly, what's its part in the history of the area and in the story that you're telling? Yeah, Chulalongkorn University is interesting because um, nowadays it is deemed um, a very royalist university. Um, and it's very well known that it makes a lot of money from the businesses around the campus or on the campus because uh, part of the campus is um, used for commercial purposes like the Siam, um, the Siam area, the Siam uh, Square area is uh, owned by Chulalongkorn um, University and a lot of shopping malls on the, um, on the property um, are of course owned by Chulalongkorn University or rented out. Uh, by um, Chulalongkorn University, so they make most of their money from using the land for commercial purposes. Uh, but initially, um, the land didn't belong to Chulalongkorn University. It was, um, I mean, uh, Chulalongkorn University had to pay rent to the monarchy, to the king, in order to be able to um, construct buildings and to use it for university purposes. It was only in 19, um, after 1932, after the coup happened, um, and the revolution happened in Siam when the absolute monarchy was abolished, that um, that Pibun, the prime minister at that time, actually transferred the land title deed to Chulalongkorn University. So the fact that Chulalongkorn University nowadays can make so much money from its property is not due to the monarchy, it's due to the enemies of the monarchy, like Prime Minister Pibun. That's quite an interesting fact that no one has actually um, previously talked about openly, but uh, for a university that is considered to be the royalist university in Bangkok to actually owe its fortunes to the enemies of the monarchy was quite interesting to find out during my, um, during my research. I, you did the research and uh, wrote and published the book, of course, before the um, passing away of uh, King Bumipon and the ascendancy to the throne of his son, Towards mm -hmm. the uh, end of the book, though, you do speculate on the implications of a change in uh, kingship for ritual and charismatic authority and business in Bangkok. Perhaps you'd like to say something about those contents of also uh, in view of the events that have occurred since the time you were writing the book. Yeah, <clears throat> I mean... Bumipon's reign was so successful because he didn't interfere in people's agendas. I mean, people could latch on to his charisma, they could use um, him as a source of legitimacy, and they didn't have to be afraid that um, there would be any repercussions. So because Bumipon wasn't an interventionist um, king, um, the system could run on autopilot. He was charismatic, he was always with, with each and every act um, referring to him as a demigod, his charisma was confirmed and people um, got their actions legitimized by referring to him. So that was quite a, a um, well-running system to a certain point. Thaksin undermined it in a way. But with the new king, 
who is very interventionist. I mean, even his closest aides can never be secure that they won't find themselves um, behind bars the next day or even killed. Um, you never know what's going to happen. So um, especially people who um, refer to their proximity to King Batira Longkorn, they are living in quite a, a big danger. They have been a, a lot of former allies of um, of King Batira Longkorn, even his third wife, who have lost everything or even their lives because they um, they claimed to be uh, close to the to the king or former prince and um, and they didn't really in the end profit from it. They lost everything. So why should people continue to use him and to um, use their claim of proximity to him as a source um, uh, uh, for legitimacy? So if that doesn't work anymore. Um, the monarchy will lose its lose its central position in the Thai um, in the Thai order. So uh, that's why I think um, with the new king, with King Vatiralongkorn, the monarchy will transform fundamentally, and we already see that happen. He um, he's already uh, uh, um, uh, uh, I mean uh, thrown out a few of his former closest allies, where you ne would have never thought that they will lose their positions, and they've already lost them after a few months, and he's. He's much more um, interfering in processes like demanding a rewrite of the constitution and these kinds of things. He's an interventionist king. That's the opposite of what, it, what his father was and why the system uh, uh, ran so well for the royalists under his father, even though in recent years the military had to step in and, and uh, uh, modify things, but um, to put it mildly. But um, yeah, with the new king, it's not working the same way as before. He's not this this stable charisma, charismatic source of legitimacy for people's actions? And why should people still refer to him then as a source of legitimacy? Sohat, you've been very generous with your time. Is, is there anything else about the politics of space in Bangkok and the contents of the book that you'd like to mention before we close? Not really. I'm, of course, I would recommend people to, to read the book. Um, because um, I think it's it's. I mean, what bothered me um, for for a couple of years before I started out with my research was that people were always somehow smiling at me when I was saying. Um, I mean, especially from the academic scene that I'm hanging out with my friends at Siam Paragon um, the whole day, and they were saying, "Yeah, that's not anthropologically important. You should study other spaces um, that have more historical depth and these kinds of things." And that's just um, a postmodern space of consumption and that's not really interesting and uh, you should study things that matter and then um, I started to studying um, to study that uh, space and I found it quite interesting what you can come up with um, after doing that and I think after reading the book you will um, look at that particular space with um, uh, from another point of view from another angle and um, I could never go back and just enjoy Siam Paragon and go to a to a ramen place and hang out with my friends without thinking about uh, what's been happening there and uh, about the wider relevance of, of um, that spot. And I think um, that's what's uh, enriched me and I hope what might enrich some of the readers um, after reading the book. Well, I think you certainly have impressed upon us through this book that uh, there's much more to Seyan Paragon <laughs> than meets the eye, literally. And I should add that, of course, there's a lot in the book that we didn't cover that goes on 
outside of shopping centers, including uh, you've already alluded to the uh, slum community, the work mm -hmm. you went and did there. And there's also a great discussion of, of street vendors in, in Bangkok uh, around these buildings, so sort of both mm -hmm. the verticality and the horizontality of uh, space are features of the latter parts of the book that uh, I also would uh, strongly recommend listeners um, go and take a look at and, and the anti-royal graffiti not to forget not to forget would you like to say anything <laughs> about that before we close yeah i mean that that was a, a very important event in uh, probably one of the most important events in recent thai history that people actually um while commemorating the crackdown on the red shirts six months after the crackdown they were starting actually to spontaneously draw um caricatures of the king with um A, a Hitler mustache and um, and alluding to his blindness on one uh, um, on one eye and and uh, painting the queen as a fat big blue whale with with a diamond necklace around her around her neck and these kinds of things. I mean that was the most um, outrageous thing um, that happened in the eyes of royalists in in Bangkok and Thailand in recent years. And that is something that I'm covering also in the book and also talking about the wider relevance of those graffiti and also talking about some um, some examples of those graffiti um, and what they what those particular graffiti meant for yeah. the people who drew them yeah and there's a great um, article in the journal of contemporary asia you wrote on that topic as well so uh, both yeah. the book and uh, that article speak to that um those events and that topic very well. Uh, in any case, uh, Sohat Anali, I thank you so much for talking to me today about your new book, Working Towards the Monarchy. You're welcome. Thank you. And uh, thank you all, dear listeners. That's all we have time for with this episode, but I do hope you listen to some of the other great channels on the New Books Network and look forward to you joining us again next month for another conversation with an author of a new book. <laughs> Monkey! Hey, thank God for your Hey, thank God for your